1: So, dress listener Sabrina wrote to us recently to say, I was wondering if you could do a podcast about the history of fashion in protest. Just in the past week, I've learned so much about how people dress for safety and anonymity in protests, but I've also seen videos like this where people deliberately stand out to send a message with their clothing. And she sent us a video of a very dapper black gentleman dressed in a burgundy blazer, shirt and tie and what appeared to be
0: black and white striped pants. And I've actually seen more images of him online. He was one of several hundred men who recently answered stylist Gabriel Garman's social media call to join him in a Harlem march in honor of George Floyd. And Garman invited participants to wear, quote unquote, your best to show respect for George Floyd. And this was in the days leading up to his funeral. And he recently told Vogue, he told the journalist, um, Chiomanada at Vogue that, quote, we wanted to honor him and our other lost brothers and sisters in a way that felt appropriate. And actually one of the participants at this march in Harlem was a man by the name of Elias Hightown. He's a fashion consultant. And he also was interviewed by Vogue and he said, I almost wore vans with my suit, but I knew I could not do this by halves. This was really about changing the narrative and showing the power of dress.
1: And as we all know, dress is powerful. We have built this entire podcast around this message that right. clothing <laughs> is imbued, right? With meaning beyond mere aesthetics. And if you really think about it, clothing is at once one of the most personal, intimate things a person can own. And on the other hand, and paradoxically, it's also the most public.
0: Yeah, and as we've discussed, April, one of the things that I'm really interested in and studying in my PhD is the language or semiotics of clothing. So what does clothing reveal to us when we look at it without ever having to say anything, right? Um, With so many societal and cultural codes embedded into each and every garment we put on our bodies, dress can be this incredibly powerful mode of expression, and in the case of today's topic, protest clothing, and specifically fashionable clothing, has long been used as a symbolic form of resistance and objection.
1: And Sabrina, we have to admit protest fashion is a Huge topic, an enormous (laughs) topic. We've actually already done several episodes in the past that have addressed different aspects of it in one form or another. So if you have not already, you can definitely check out our two-part episode on um, the French Revolution, fashion and politics, as well as Styling the American Suffragist, which was our interview with Risa Britannia. And these episodes will provide more context for today's episode, which will focus on fashion and protest in the 20th and 21st centuries. And I have to say again, because today's episode is a mini-sode, and therefore, by its very nature briefer than normal. We really (laughs) invite you to dig more into these topics yourselves, expand upon our research, um, perhaps even consider requesting a full-length episode on any of these topics that we're going to mention briefly today, but a full-length episode for the future.
0: Yeah, and I believe actually that Sabrina's question specifically was in relation to what people have worn to and in protests. And by that, I'm assuming she means mass protests like we are seeing around the world today. And that Vogue article that we started with about the stylist marchers is worth returning to and quoting at length because of not only the visual imagery that this description invokes, and of course this is accompanied by many many photographs. And you can, you can look at that in the link that we'll provide in our show notes. But so it, it provides this visual imagery, but it also provides this historical imagery, right? So things that, ha- that find reference in history. So here it goes with black lives matter shirts peeking out from their three piece suits and fists raised in the air. The demonstrators who poured down Adam Clayton Powell, Jr Boulevard towards central park were a sight to behold. Some came dressed in the sober black suit, reminiscent of civil rights activists of the 1960s. Others were decked out in vibrant Ankara prints, and Ankara is that those vibrant Dutch wax cotton prints, and the kind of modern bespoke tailoring you might find at local menswear boutiques such as Harlem Haberdashery. Red berets jostled with jaunty straw fedora hats, sleek black do-rags and white kufi caps, pocket squares were festooned with flowers, lapels studded with black power pins, At one point along the route, a young black boy of about nine or 10 was seen getting a tutorial on how to knot a tie from an older black gentleman in a dapper gray suit.
1: It might be 2020, but the clothing of these marchers reflects an amalgamation of styles worn historically by Black men and women to protest. For example, the suit, well it's quite innocuous today, you know, it's, it's, it's a given in menswear, it was an incredibly powerful form of protest specifically for Black men historically. If you think about it, the pantsuit is arguably one of the most gendered garments in European and American history, and how many of us have considered that it also used to be one of the most racialized? So from past episodes, some of you may remember that King Charles II of England is largely credited with kind of inventing or are are pulling the men's three-piece suit um, into European fashion in the 17th century. And this would, of course, develop and evolve into what we recognize as the modern suit by the 19th century. And it has changed surprisingly little since then, right? However, these suits were made at the time to be worn by white men in white European societies by and large.
0: Right. But what happens when that European male suit is worn in a colonialist setting? And what happens when it is adopted by non-white men? So in our recent two-part episode, Dr. Monica L. Miller talks about how Black men adopted the Euro-American clothing of their white peers, but also how they subverted the racialized overtone of that clothing to make it their own, to be a reflection of their own autonomy and who they are, of their sophistication in light of oppression. So we had influential luminaries like W.E. Du Bois who really understood and harnessed the power of fashionable clothing, what it meant to project a new image of African-American people in contrast to the racist portraiture, depictions, descriptions that dominated late 19th and early 20th century media. And Monica talks about this too, but she's referring to you know how blackface was literally created to demean newly freed black men and women in the post-Civil War era.
1: Which leads us to fashion as it was used in the silent protest parade, which took place on July 28th, 1917 in New York City. And we're not going to go into too much detail here because we, we did discuss this in Monica's most recent episodes. But for those of you who need a reminder, the silent protest parade was a parade organized by the... NLACP and other leaders of the African-American community in response to heightened violence against the black community that resulted in numerous deaths. Thousands of black men, women, and children walked in this protest, um, protesting recent lynchings and race riots. While well, their silence, because they were silent, they were they were not speaking, um, and by extension, their clothing simultaneously countered this, you know, rampant stereotyping that labeled black people at that time as loud, uncontrollable, and quote uncivilized. So. In this protest, we see darkly clad men and boys in suits and women and girls in white dresses, very fashionable in their attire. And and this uniformity in their clothing, because they had all decided to dress this way in advance, made this really powerful statement without ever having to say a word.
0: Right. And then you fast forward almost 50 years and look at the many marches associated with the civil rights movement, right, of the 1960s. And if you look at the many images of Martin Luther King and as supporters, the men are almost all wearing suits, they are the epitome of fashionable dress of the time, and the men and women alike, you know, the women are wearing fashionable clothing. Um, And like their white counterparts, fashion was a means by which Black men and women asserted their conformity to societal codes that dictated certain forms of dress as being respectable and appropriate to one's gender, right? But unlike their white counterparts, they were also using it to assert that respectability in the face of widespread oppression and systemic racism that deemed them not worthy of equal treatment in society. So by the 1960s, 100 years after the end of slavery, those systemically racist practices are still very much in place.
1: And let's be honest, um, not all suits are treated equally because while the modern suit in its tailored form might have come to represent European and then American standards in male attire, the infamous zoot suit, as worn by predominantly African and Mexican-American men, and even some women, very dapper women, became the subject of scrutiny and violence during World War II in America. Uh, The zoot suit was made famous by jazz musicians such as Cab Calloway, and it really stood out in the way that the silhouette and the form of it enveloped the body the the pants were very baggy the jacket was much longer than like traditional "Quote unquote" fashion at that time, and and this was a sartorial form of self expression for many Mexican American youth in California during the 1940s, and it became the center of what is now called the Zoot Suit Riots of 1943. And um, these riots basically stemmed out of the fact that white men targeted Hispanic zoot suit wearers and beat them, and even sometimes stripped them of their zoot suits in the streets. And, and so many of you have asked for an episode on this. Yes. So we... <laughs> We will get to it. It is on our list. Um, you know, and the, the excuse at the time for this violence was that they were flaunting the extravagance in the face of wartime clothing restrictions, um, particularly related to how much fabric should be used in a garment to conserve resources. But but let's, let's not make a mistake here about that. What this was really about is these were racially driven attacks, basically seeking out to put Mexican-American men in their place and Kathy Peace in her book Zoot Suit the enigmatic career of an extreme style writes quote perhaps the first time in American history that fashion was believed to be the cause of widespread civil unrest and and there's been a lot written on this topic Cass as you know and and again we promise you your Zoot Suit
0: Riot episode is coming (laughs) I'm all over it (laughs) No, the 1960s, so fast forwarding back to the 60s, um, this is a time when a lot of those systemically racist institutions that people have been battling and protesting, um, you know, and, and that we previously discussed, these institutions come toppling down, or so we thought we're in 2020 and we're fighting them. We're gonna get to that in a minute. The 1960s was an era that witnessed the end of segregation and the beginning of the end of what would very quickly become outdated modes of dressing. So in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Um, women wearing mini skirts were themselves the targets of arrests by police and mass protests by men into the 1970s. Andrew Avoska has this fantastic book called *Cultured States: Youth, Gender, and Modern Style in 1960s Dar es Salaam*, and he writes about the "quote unquote" ban the mini protests that erupted around the country in the early 1970s. Now, this not probably. Does not surprise our listeners, because as we know, the woman's body and the clothing she puts on that body has long been the site of policing by men. A skirt is never just a skirt, especially if it's a mini.
1: <laughs> Writes Vasquez, quote, In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a Tanzanian state launched a series of high-profile campaigns targeting symbols of Western culture and influence. Of which fashion reigned supreme, banning miniskirts, soul music, wigs, cosmetics, trousers, ranging from the drainpipe to the bell bottom, the so-called Afro hairstyles and beauty contests, all in the name of national culture. In each of these cases, it was the perceived associations of these styles with a decadent urbanity, a dangerous cosmopolitanism, and flouting of gendered and generational norms that made them targets.
0: Yeah, so the miniskirt really became this emblem, this marker, um, this focal point, right, of so- societal anxieties surrounding women's increasing autonomy. Women were leaving their rural villages to join the workforce in the city, for instance. They were choosing not to get married. They were on birth control. They were in control of their sexuality. So we see a lot of these same issues married in the, mirrored around the world, actually. hmm And I keep saying I'll be doing an episode on arresting fashion, April, and I need to because this is a really, really interesting case study. There are actually laws in Tanzania against quote-unquote indecent dressing. And like I said, numerous women were arrested for wearing their hair a certain way, for wearing, you know, quote-unquote Western um, styles of of dress. So this is a really fascinating period. And there are so many admirable, brave young women standing up for themselves and their rights. It's really, really cool.
1: Yeah. Fashion was a, really powerful tool of protest in the 1960s. Not only are men and women dismantling years of societal dictates simply by the act of wearing blue jeans in public, for instance, getting rid of hats and gloves for the most part and throwing traditional quote-unquote, respectable clothing to the wind, you you have dress serving as a way with which also to visually unify groups. So, for instance, the black beret and black jacket remains a powerful symbol of the Black Panthers to this very day. And these items, these clothing items, were so synonymous with the Black Panther Party that during a congressional investigation of the Black Panther Party in 1970— when its members started to abandon wearing the black beret and the black jacket, this was actually cited by Congress as an example of decline in membership, which is really fascinating. Really fascinating. <laughs> so one congressman even noted that the loss of its effect is because the style had been adopted or co-opted by so many non-Panther youth and in the end, to become like proper fashion. And, and for those of our listeners that might not know um, about the Black Panther Party, um, they were a socialist political organization um, active and formed during the civil rights movement to combat police brutality against the Black
0: community. Is any of this sounding familiar?
1: <laughs> Just <Yeah>. say. <saying.
0: laughs> and again, almost 60 years after the civil rights movement, 60 years. And people are in the streets around the world combating today this exact same thing. And I am hopeful that we are on the way to dismantling the systemically racist practices as we have with so many other embedded societal codes that seek to govern who we're supposed to be as citizens of the United States or whatever country you're in and how we are supposed to act as citizens, right? So this plays out visually so, so, in so many ways in the ways that we dress So you can just look at the breakdown of social codes regarding gender, for instance. No longer are young men and women dressed in suits and dresses to protest, right? These societal dictates that say that that's the way you're supposed to dress, they're gone, for the most part. Many people, of course, lament the loss of these niceties. You can wear jeans and flip-flops to the opera, church, fine dining establishment. I mean, I wouldn't, but (laughs) People do. Um, But they also reflect shifts in our liberty, right, and access to those liberties by being able to freely choose, in the United States at least, what we put on our bodies. You can fit into societal codes or you can challenge them.
1: And that is what we are seeing today more now than ever. And that is reflected in seeing the bulk of what people are wearing to protest as being based on comfort personal style, but also, as listener Sabrina noted, protection. And there are a lot of articles um, circulating around right now about protecting yourself while protesting. So people are are literally being targeted and and hurt by the police, whether it be by tear gas, rubber bullets, or just full-on unnecessary force. And of course, we have this added weight of the coronavirus pandemic that is still happening. And we have all heard of PPE, which of course stands for Personal Protective Equipment, as it relates to the coronavirus. But what about as it relates to protecting yourself as a protester?
0: Yeah, and this was the concern of another dress listener, Olivia, who wrote to us to say hello. Um, And in relation to last week's fashion history, now she writes... Y'all mentioned towards the beginning that you were trying to think of what content you could put out that is helpful in this situation. And I wanted to suggest an episode, protest dress, specifically the types of clothes and such to wear to keep people as safe as possible. Now, I have no idea how (laughs) radical y'all want to get. I love that she says y'all with your (laughs) topics. And this is pretty radical stuff. And it is. It really is. But it's fascinating. Um, And if there's even enough here to make an episode from, but at the very least, the information that's out there could just be an interesting read for y'all. Things are in such turmoil right now, and I worry for all the people I see in videos of the protests who are not 100% dressed for the occasions. It makes injuries worse and potential consequences greater. So she actually, one of the first things she recommended was a free downloadable book called Riot Medicine, which is a guide for street medics who show up to protests and riots, and it actually has chapters on PPE and clothing.
1: For example, the author suggests wearing a baseball hat as it, quote, can protect your eyes and face from direct sunlight, but a reason you may want to wear one to actions is the brim can partially shield your eyes from being sprayed with chemical agents. You may not always be wearing your eye protection or an incident may occur without warning. By quickly tilting your head down, you can avoid most of the chemical agent in a direct spray. Likewise, this can be done to help protect your identity if you spot photography.
0: This is also crazy. Like I read through a lot of this and it it's it's it, it's like crazy. It's like sci-fi almost, but it's real. It's true. And yeah. and <laughs> protesters need to be taking these things into consideration. And it's not just in America. There's protests all over the world, but we saw it recently, you know, those protests in Hong Kong, et cetera. They're, they're everywhere. This is for a lot of different people to take these things into account about the actual realities, what it means to be a protester. You're putting yourself in harm's way.
1: Mm-hmm. She also
0: mentioned Black Block, which I'd never heard of. Have you heard of that? No, but um, I'm very excited to learn more about it. So it's I guess it was developed in the 1980s. Black Black is apparently a militant protest movement, although I've also read it called a strategy or a tactic. So it could be both. Um, but it's basically a, a group of protesters who use head-to-toe Black clothing to both conceal their identities. So they wear ski masks, scarves, you know, Black hoodies, Black pants, Black shoes. But that by all wearing Black, they appear as a unified group. I did not find any reference to Black Bloc members or techniques in relation to the current Black Lives Matter movement, but they have been around apparently since I said like maybe even as early as the 70s. And then, of course, into the 20th century in response to the Trump administration, you've seen them at rallies and protests.
1: Olivia also mentioned how the prominence of masks at these protests because, of course, COVID-19 is hindering the successful use of facial recognition software, which, of course, we've all heard about. But how much of it, how many, how many of us know a ton about how it actually works? So this is something that that's really fascinating. Apparently, Amazon just banned the police department from using their software for the next year in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. Think about that. <laughs> um, and the Business Insider just put out an article six days ago on clothing that can be worn to trick facial recognition software. And according to this article, more than half of all Americans' faces are now already logged into police databases. Right.
0: So, but 50-50, April, you are my—, my <laughs> Yeah. face is already in a police database. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the reality of technology. And if it goes unchecked and it gets in the hands of the wrong people, I mean, it is, it's pretty scary to think about. So we all need to be aware of it um, and, and, and learn more about it. Um, the article reads, facial recognition software uses artificial intelligence to detect faces or human figures in real time. But that software is fallible. Clothing can quote unquote dazzle that software with misleading shapes that stop it from knowing what it's looking at, stops the AI from, from being able to process it. Other designs it confuse AI with images of decoy faces, preventing it from making the right identification. These designs are still niche, so they've and have mostly only appeared as art installations or academic products, but as facial recognition becomes more widespread, they may catch on as a next trend in functional fashion. And these are far out there. <laughs> I just had to share a couple of examples. So there's kind of these LED light goggles that you turn on and the inferred light like messes with the software. But there, my personal favorite um, was one Dutch design student created this projector that you apparently wear on your head and it projects someone else's face. on yours. <laughs> um, There's also a lot of makeup, different makeup techniques you can use. And one student even created a headscarf patterned with different human faces. Well, I, for one, would like
1: to delve into this a little bit further as perhaps this this sort of design, I don't want to call it a trend, but impulse really um, um, develops further. Um, so this may not be the last time you hear about this on Dressed. <laughs> I would love to do a really more in-depth um, um, something on a Fashion History Now um, episode on this, so. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, And I think that perhaps does it for us today, dress listeners. Please consider some of these resources if you are heading out to protest this week or in the coming weeks next time you get dressed.
0: We love hearing from you so much. So please write to us with your own fashion history mystery request. Uh, you can write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is of course our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressedpodcast without the underscore. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and
1: everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday.